Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey folks, this is Mark with Stuff Your Doctor Should Know. And I'm coming to you without Catalina, unfortunately. She couldn't be here right now, but she sends her love and appreciation for everyone being back. Um, this is going to be just a very quick introduction to the second part of the three-part series with Dr. Sam Chichoa. I will mention just two things quickly. One, I put in the last minute of interview number one, just to give everyone who's listened to this already a point of reference, so it just flows right into two without uh, any interruption. And two, there is a lot of information here. This is uh, the meat of all three interviews, so... Again, I say just stick with it and stop it, pause it, go back and listen to it. I've done it a few times already. I've gone back and listened to it over and over because he's saying some pretty profound stuff here. And I put in the show notes some material that he references within this interview so you can go back and uh, do some further research on your own. And lastly, part three will be pretty much on the heels of this one. Going to release it within 24 hours so you won't have to wait that long. And... Um, Hopefully you'll enjoy this whole series. Catalina will be back tomorrow when we introduce part three. So here we go with part two. Enjoy. So how can cancer, which you know, it says uh, it's a random, nasty mutation, spontaneous thing happens. How can it be a random mutation if every cell can do it? And how can so many different things cause the same random mutation? How is it that every cell in every person has the capacity of becoming cancer? If trauma can cause it, if radiation can cause it, if stress can cause it, if uh, viruses can cause it, it can't be a random mutation. The only thing it can be is a response, a programmed response, part of every single cell's response to trauma. It has to be a response. It cannot be a random event. And then if breast cancer is a random mutation, how come it follows the same pathway in virtually every woman who gets breast cancer? How can a random mutation in one lady match exactly the pattern of spread, the pattern of growth, as a random mutation in another lady, let alone in every lady? It cannot be random. It's programmed. Now, I just want to say I, I, um, I don't believe stress is such a vital factor. The ability... It can't be a random mutation. It can't be a random mutation. It can't follow the same pathway. Everybody who gets lung cancer, lung cancer will spread to the bones, lungs, brain. I mean, it'll spread throughout the lungs, of course, but it'll go to the brain, it'll go to the bones, go to the liver. Everybody with breast cancer, it'll be a mediastinal spread, it'll go to the liver, not so often to the brain like lung cancer. Every cancer has its own behavior pattern. It has to be programmed. Now, the other thing is we have this wonderful thing called evolution. And with evolution, whenever something is bad, it gets pulled out of the system. So that you would think the ability to develop cancer would be pulled out of, of the human race. It isn't. It's actually promoted by evolution. So there must be a function to cancer. And the biggest clue was vaccines. For me as a kid, I'm thinking, well, we're using cancer cells to grow vaccines because cancer 
can actually resist all of these viruses and all of these infections. What if that's its role? What if cancer in the body is there to provide a form of encapsulating infections that would otherwise kill us? And what proof do we have of that? And that's what I'll get right into. Okay. No published science on this, but 50 years worth of practice of growing vaccines on cancer cells. Why? Because they're the only cells that can resist infection. So we go back to the big question that I had before. What if cancer cells are an encapsulating mechanism? What if it's a program designed to protect you against something that's otherwise killing you and would kill you really quickly? And what proof do we have of this? The statistical proof. Uh, first of all, again, they'll say there's no science, but pseudoscience. Exactly. Nobody's really looked into it other than me. But there is statistical proof, and there's common sense science. So why do we grow vaccines on cancer cells? Because they're the cells that resist infections. What happened when cancer started climbing out of proportions? You know, 300 years ago, it was one in 300. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were so scared of it that they wanted to bury the few people with cancer in concrete 20 feet underground. This was the medical recommendation in medical journals. What is it that suddenly made cancer more prevalent? Now it's one in three. It's a hundred times more prevalent. And when you draw the curve of cancer climbing up, you can draw a precise curve of of something else going down as a mirror image. And the perfect reflection is the incidence of death from infection. So the more that cancer increased, the less people were dying of infections. Wow. A hundred years ago, we used to have uh, polio, smallpox. Uh, Of course, you know, we vaccined them, but there were other infections too. Uh, If you had a paper cut, you'd probably die within seven days. If you stubbed your toe, people were dying of infections like this. Mm. And all of a sudden, it stopped. And when you ask the average doctor, how come it stopped? Oh, we invented antibiotics. (laughs) Yeah, of course we did. That was in the 1940s. So in the 1940s, there were so few antibiotics around that a soldier would take the antibiotic and then he would go to pee and they would grab his pee and give it to the next soldier because they didn't have enough penicillin and it would come up in the pee. (laughs) And then when the next soldier would pee, they'd grab his pee and give it to the next soldier trying to get as much penicillin into them as they could. So that's how much penicillin we had in the 1940s. But in the 1930s, on a global scale, death from infection had started to drop. And it started to drop in precise proportion to the rise in cancer. So something that I talk about a lot is about candida, because I see so many clients with it, and I always say that it's actually um, not the, the, it's not the main event and that the candida is there to immobilize some foreign invader in the body and it's trying to like sequester it so that it doesn't go li- liberate itself in the body. But it, there's a means to an end for that candida. Like it's, it's wanting you to give it the minerals and the tools to fight it. So is that the same thing with the cancer here or is it get, does it become it's out way, of it's, it's way better. It moved me to do an experiment. And the experiment was exactly designed to see what the function of cancer was, if it could protect against serious infections. And so, again, I had all of these animals left over who had cancer and from previous experiments. They were dying. So I injected them with tetanus. Now, we know that when you inject an animal with tetanus, it dies horribly in a few hours um, or days. 
the animals who had a significant tumor load didn't even feel it. In fact, they lived their normal life until the cancer killed them. So at the time of autopsy, you could see all of the tetanus spores perfectly encapsulated in the cancer mass. So the cancer mass had somehow acted up as a sponge, attracted the tetanus, solidified around it, and stopped it from spreading. Mm. So, amazing. Wow. Now, if you were to inject tetanus somewhere else in the body, the cancer would actually metastasize to that site and encapsulate it, which gave me a really nice explanation for a function for cancer. Now, of course, I'm not the only person who noticed this, um, but I'm the only person who had a clue about why it was happening. In the 60s, science had no ethics. And uh, you can probably question some of the ethics even today. Um, I, and it, again, it's, it's the way people are, the way people act. Uh, I remember 30 years ago when AIDS first broke out, I lectured and I said, you know what, here's what's crazy. HIV kills people and it's going to destroy white blood cells. So give it time and somebody, some idiot will be injecting people with leukemia with HIV because they'll say the virus will destroy leukemia. And sure enough, that's the big news from last year. Hmm. And so at Mount Sinai or Mayo, I don't even know which the clinic is, uh, but hi, listen, you have leukemia. We want to try something new. Okay. Uh, we're going to inject you with AIDS. Okay. <laughs> you know, but we weakened it because, okay, because we're so good with HIV now. Really. We, we don't know. We don't know so much about it. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that using HIV against leukemia is insane because a better effect is observed with measles and mumps against leukemia. So why not use those? It's just so that you can register something new, so you can patent something new, so you can make money with something new. Mm. And that sort of thinking is probably what got us AIDS in the first place from a virus called the MP virus, which was noticed to destroy the immune system back in the 60s and injected into leukemia people. I don't know leukemia people really get a tough break. Mm -hmm. They were also the first patients to be treated with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Anyway, so here's the thing. In the 60s, when medical experiments had little ethics where I was, um, doctors tried so hard to find a virus that would kill um, cancer. And this was the beginning of biological medicine. Um, actually, it was the beginning of the end of biological medicine. Biological medicine probably started 150 years ago with a Dr. Coley, maybe even before him. Dr. Coley noticed that after he'd done extensive surgery on one of his patients from sarcoma, bone cancer, the patient died. But he noticed another patient on a bed next door who had developed a severe uh, fever and infection. The infection was called erysipelas. It was caused by streptococcus pyogenes. So the person who developed this fever, has no antibiotics back then. They just had to carry him through it. Um, within a couple of weeks, all the bone cancer was gone. Never came back. So Dr. Coley then tried injecting people with streptococcus pyogenes. Now, what did I just tell you about infections and cancer? Cancer cells resist infections, and they protect us against infections. So when he tried to inject strep pyogenes into patients, what happened 99 times out of 100? Nothing. Nothing. Because the cancer 
destroyed the infection or encapsulated. But one time out of a hundred, the infection grew and the cancer went away. So he then set about making something called Coley's toxins, where he made the infection so much stronger in its toxic ability that he could treat everybody, give them a massive fever, and he achieved a 51 to 52% cure rate for bone cancer 150 years ago. And that's documented in the medical journals. Now, the bad thing about Coley is that he used to have a streptococcus pyogenes from the patients who were cured. And when he was making his medicine, his vaccines out of that, he had an infection that specifically attacked cancer, that specifically reversed the disease. And he went the wrong way and started thinking, I need something more toxic and more toxic. So he went for different strains of strep, and the more toxic he got, the less effective he got. Uh, it's not the toxicity, it's the specificity. Mm. But even when you wade through all that, you end up with something that was 52% effective at curing cancer. One out of every two patients cured. Mm. And where is that treatment now? It's in the FDA under an IND, Investigational New Drug License. It's 150 years old. Oh, my goodness. And it's still being investigated as a new drug only in very few places around America. So, <clears throat> back in the 60s, they said, well, let's do this with viruses now. What happens? Well, we know that sometimes with leukemia and sometimes with lymphoma, the measles and the mumps will put them into remission. Mm. And now here's argument number two for not vaccinating. Mm. Because when we vaccinate everybody, measles and the mumps can't put them into remission anymore because they're immune to them. So, so... Um, there was actually a study in India just a few years back, and patients with AIDS who caught measles or mumps went into remission for six months. You know, but this is really important because conventional thinking would have you th believe that if you have AIDS and you get measles or mumps, you'll die. But no, you actually go into remission because the viruses fight it out. Mm -hmm. And now instead of having toxic therapy uh, that costs forty, fifty thousand a year. You could use a measles or a mumps vaccine at two, three bucks and put somebody into remission for six months, then use another strain six months later and another preparation six months later and keep them like constantly in remission. This, this reminds me of a side note. Did you see World War Z? It's a zombie movie with Brad Pitt. Yeah. You know, they like all these zombies, they find a cure, and the way they do it is they inject all the zombies with, well, they inject everybody with, the, um, with meningitis, and then it, it kills the zombie virus, and then, and then now everyone just has meningitis, and then they treat them for meningitis. So it's the concept of like fighting for territory in the body, right? No? <laughs> it's not the same thing? <laughs> the science behind World War Z is that when everybody had meningitis, the zombies didn't want to eat them because they didn't want to catch the virus. It's like when a predator sees a sick animal, oh. it won't kill it. You see? It, it, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's a great... Uh, I, I mean, it never occurred to me until you just started talking about this. That that's disease kind of against disease. And the message from this podcast is that the world needs more zombies. So. <laughs> hey, I'm ready for the zombie apocalypse. Right? <laughs> and so what your doctor should know, more zombies. <laughs> more zombies. <laughs> so um, here's the thing. Um, disease fights disease. 
And this shouldn't be a surprise. Oh, there's absolutely no scientific data on that. Bullshit, <laughs> there is. Where do you think penicillin comes from? It comes from a fungus that kills bacteria. Disease fights disease. We all have colds, we all have flus, we all get measles or mumps. Have you ever seen anybody with a cold and a flu at the same time? Or measles and mumps at the same time? Almost never. Because one virus wants the host mm. body for itself and sets up reactions to protect it against another disease. Yes, even zombies. So, so, <laughs> so you, got, you, you have to be kind of careful in this thinking because, you know, um, you have to weigh out which one is worse. It's like you're having to figure out what, <laughs> what you'd rather have. You well, know? see, that's the beautiful thing about vaccines. You find out what the protective feature is, and you use that. You don't use the whole organism. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, but first you have to find out what fights what. Okay. So, for example, the penicillium uh, will kill a bacteria. But you don't inject penicillium, the, the fungus, uh, um, into the yeast or fungus into a person. You inject penicillin, its extract. So it's the same with the vaccines. In the 60s, um, they injected all of these cancer patients with the worst infections they could find. Smallpox, um, West Nile virus, uh, anything, anything deadly, tetanus. And you know the funniest thing is? that not one patient died of the infections. They usually didn't get over their cancer either. Sometimes had a bit of shrinkage, but then the cancer grew back and they died. Um, but a lot of doctors and nurses in that trial came down with the infections and died. Mm. So that shows you how much protection cancer gives against these incredibly deadly things that would kill a perfectly healthy person. Mm. And right then and there you see, well... Maybe cancer is serving a function. Now, what was happening when I shrink the cancer? What happens when you take chemo and radiation and shrink the cancer? Why does the person sometimes, usually, die even faster? What's being released when you shrink the cancer? Whatever the underlying cause Infection. Is. Whatever the underlying infection is. And what's the commonest cause of death from cancer? Almost half. Mm. It's not cancer. It's infection. So, cancer is actually protecting you against something. And I said about saying, well, you know what, we're just talking about numbers, but AIDS patients achieved so much more with their therapy because they demanded it. And they achieved so much more respect that when cancer patients are dying every day of five or six different infections, E. coli, um, staphylococcus, streptococcus, proteus, klebsiella, a handful of infections, kill cancer patients every day. Um, but AIDS patients, they have pneumocystis pneumonia. So they get, everybody with AIDS will eventually develop that, or most people will. So they get prophylactic antibiotics. They take them every day. Why don't cancer patients take prophylactic antibiotics if half of them die of infections? Why don't cancer patients get vaccinated against these infections mm -hmm. before they die from them? Um, back when they're healthy, when the cancer starts, let's vaccinate you against the infection that's most likely to kill you. You know, pancreatic cancer, E. coli. Then let's vaccinate you against E. coli so when the moment comes and the cancer tears into your intestines or releases whatever cargo it has, the E. coli comes out, we know 
that 50% of pancreatic cancer patients will die of E. coli septicemia. Why don't we vaccinate against that before it happens? Mm. Because that way, you've closed off one face of death. You know, that's half people who die, die from this. And how easy would it be to give a prophylactic antibiotic or to give a vaccine? Wow. So I started doing that. Well, there's absolutely no scientific evidence that if you vaccinate a person against E. coli infection with cancer, um, a person with cancer with an E. coli vaccine, there is no evidence they will live long. Of course there isn't. It hasn't been done by anybody other than myself. And I found out that the more... I did it just out of caring. You know, I was just out of med school, and all these cancer patients would come to see me, and I hey, you know, the vaccines, they're readily available for a lot of these things. So I began to vaccine them. I began to do whatever medical or alternative support I could so that they wouldn't die of these infections. You know what? They lived better. The cancer slowed down, often shrank. I didn't cure anybody. Um, Eventually the cancer would kill them, but they lived much longer and a much better quality of life. Oh, so I started doing this very simple thing which is to vaccinate people against the infections that were killing them. We do this with AIDS patients. We give them prophylactic antibiotics. Why don't we do this with cancer patients? Why do we have to wait until they nearly die of an infection to treat them for an infection? And I remember something my dad told me um, years and years ago because he was one of the best doctors I knew. And I always was like trying to learn from him what his techniques were, why people would line up down the street just to see him. And he said, you know, it's things you see, it's things you notice. Sometimes you can't even find it printed anywhere or published anywhere, but you know what's right. He said to me, whenever a cancer patient is dying and they have something they need to do, they have something they need to say, or you just want to buy them a week or two more, you give them the strongest antibiotic you can get your hands on. Mm And back in those days, it was chloramphenicol. And that will buy them the time. So why would an antibiotic be able to buy more time for a cancer patient unless there's an infection that's an active part of the disease process? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that he did um, was make me look at chemotherapy. And the most effective chemotherapies are antibiotics. In fact, when you find an antibiotic that's too deadly to give just for a a cough or an infection, it usually gets applied for it to become chemo. Mm. So adriamycin, which is by far the strongest chemo available today and one of the most successful, um, is an antibiotic. Just like gentamicin, just like tobramycin, Mm. the antibiotics you're familiar with. So... Having determined that there's this link and having determined that cancer is actually uh, possibly having a useful function, then why would evolution promote it? Because eventually it still kills you. The point is that you don't have to wait for eventually. The point is that um, usually every day we have something that might kill us and sometimes only cancer can oppose it. And if the immune response is super fine and the cancer encapsulates it, it then destroys the cancer and the infection. So if cancer is an encapsulating immune response and cancer does something even better than that, it attenuates. Mm. And what that means is it takes a nasty virus 
and it makes it weaker so your body can survive it. How do we know that? How do we know that cancer cells attenuate? How do we know that cancer cells make viruses weaker? It hasn't been published anywhere. It is not recognizable science. It's pseudoscience. Oh, no. It has been published. And it's in vaccine making. The difference between the measles you catch on the street and the measles you take in your vaccine is that the measles on the vaccine has passed through cancer cells. It's been weakened. It's been attenuated. That's what cancer does. Mm. So it takes a deadly infection and makes it less deadly so the body can handle it. This is the entire science behind vaccines. Measles vaccines, mumps vaccines, polio vaccines. They all, the virus gets passage through cancer to become weaker and then it's given to the kids to, pre to prevent the real infection. What weakens the virus? Cancer. And so we know that. You know, this is the whole vaccine industry. Okay. Why can't it be doing the same in us? Now, if this happens and the immune system is, is up and about, it will destroy the infection and the cancer. It's kind of like a sophisticated macrophage. And the reason that cancer has so much DNA all over the place and, and it looks like a mess genetically is because viruses can't then, the possibility of a virus hitting an area on the DNA and killing it are much less. Mm. So it has a mess, an overflow of DNA. So it can actually accumulate virus after virus and still live. Mm. And when the viruses are drowned out by this much DNA and genetic information, they become weaker. Yeah. It's not only that cancer has a useful function, mm. we use it for that useful function. So why, why can't it be doing the same inside us? Mm. The key experiment I did was to inject cancer and tetanus at the same time mm -hmm. into a healthy animal. And if it was the right amount of tetanus and the right amount of cancer, nothing happened to the animal. He didn't get sick from the tetanus, and he didn't get cancer. Mm. So if I injected more cancer than tetanus, he didn't die of tetanus, but the cancer eventually grew. And this is a mechanism I think can explain at least some of our cancers, if not all, we have an infection, it comes in. If you cancer cells enclose it, our immune system attacks, destroys everything, end of story. But if our immune system can't attack or can't destroy all that, if it's been damaged or, or, or weakened, then the cancer cells have no choice but to keep growing around that infection. And then they reach a certain size where the body just can't rem remove the cancer or the infection. There is something else that showed me this. When I was trying to do my experiments in a test tube, I was always thinking of the one-two punch. Why? Because I liked Muhammad Ali growing up, and I was always thinking boxing, because, you know, you've got to beat this thing. And I couldn't believe that doctors never used the one-two punch against cancer. They would always just jab. It's always jabs. Even in AIDS today, it's just jabs. Little, little bites, little bites. And what I mean by that is... A lot of people know that viruses destroy cancer, uh, but instead of going through the whole process, they look for different viruses, they genetically engineer viruses, so they can make some money selling a vaccine that can just, a virus that destroys just cancer. I've always said for every disease, there's an anti-disease organism. For every cancer, there's an infection that will selectively infect it and not healthy tissue. 
but maybe I should be saying for every infection, there's a cancer that will encapsulate it. Mm -hmm. It's just that there are many types of cancer and they all have a broad spectrum activity against viruses and infections. It isn't an infection usually kills cancer patients because their immune systems are weak. An infection usually kills a cancer patient because of the breakdown of the cancer encapsulating mechanism. Metastases happen because there's a breakdown of the encapsulating mechanism. Mm. Now, you may want to believe me or not, again, the data on this, well, nobody big has ever published. And this little guy, he's been stopped from publishing by Cedars and UCLA. I'm blackballed in major, in major journals. So it, I don't need you to believe anything I just said. Just go back into thinking about fighting a war. When you infect a cancer with a virus, two things happen. There's a virus effect against the cancer where the virus begins to destroy the cancer. There's a secondary effect where the virus triggers an immune response against the cancer. And the cancer starts putting out all of the viral proteins. So if a cancer suddenly gets given um, a cold or a flu, it will put out antigens, which are proteins, which show all the cells to be covered um, with cold and flu antigens. In other words, it takes the genetic information you give it and it expresses it. It starts putting it out there. But what did I say cancer does to infections? Encapsulates it. And? It makes them less strong or less... Weakens, weakens, it. weakens it. Weakens it. It attenuates it. So after a couple of weeks, the infections can't put out their proteins anymore. Now think of it from your body's perspective. If an infection goes into the cancer and puts out its proteins, suddenly this cancer, which was invisible to the immune system, is visible as an infection because it's covered with infection proteins. The body gets its chance. It gets its chance to attack it. What if the immune system isn't strong enough? Then within two weeks, the cancer will stop making the bacterial protein or the viral protein because it's useless. It's now, it now has to encapsulate and attenuate, and it becomes invisible once again to the immune response. So there is a window, two to six weeks after an infection, where... Your body has a chance to get rid of the cancer. But usually your body hasn't got enough in it, not enough oomph. So I developed the one-two punch. So when the cancer is tagged, when it's looking like, let's say like the measles, I'm going to stick with the measles. Put a measles vaccine into the person, the cancer now looks like the measles. The body starts to attack it, can't quite do it. And you lose your window. And then the measles is suppressed, the cancer no longer puts out its proteins, and the cancer now is invisible again. Look it up. Anybody who wants to attack this as pseudoscience, this part isn't. You want to look up viral expression or viral antigen expression by cancer cells. You look it up on the Internet. It's the amazing thing about having computers. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you optimize on your window? If the person's immune response is not strong enough, to destroy this big mass of cancer that's now saying, yoo-hoo, I'm over here. If you can't capitalize on it, if the immune system can't do it, what do you do? You give another immune system. You supplement the tagging of the cancer as an infection with an immune response against the infection. So in other words, make the cancer look like a cold or flu or the measles. 
then you give the antibodies against the measles to help the body destroy the massive cancer. Now, I did something way simpler with Paul Tarasaki, and now we're starting to get into real technical details. Um, there were patients who were suffering from cancer, and um, many years ago I had developed a whole range of um, infections that could selectively infect cancer and a whole range of antibodies that could selectively attack infected cancer. So it was a one-two punch. Make the cancer look like a disease, hit it with an immune response against that disease. Because you know the person's immune response isn't strong enough. You know what it is. That's why they have the cancer. So Paul said to me, you have these amazing vaccines. I have patients who are dying right now. And may he rest in peace. He died about a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have patients who are dying right now. And I want to do something to help them. What can I do? He said, here, it's easy, Paul. <clears throat> Obviously, the person has cancer, doesn't have the right immune response against it. But everybody else in his family, especially the kids, they've been around whatever caused the cancer. And they're around the person with the cancer. So chances are they've been exposed to its cause and to its cells or fragments of. So let's give a transfusion from the kids to the parents. Mm -hmm. So we cross-matched the blood, isolated the white blood cells. And here's a key thing that Paul didn't know. Um, he didn't know that the parents were exposed to um, the measles or the mumps because what happened was I selectively chose patients, my patients at least, were selectively chosen because the kids had just been vaccinated. Okay, so what happens if a child is vaccinated against measles? He's a measles factory. They attenuated form, but he's a measles factory. He's running around the house putting out viral particles for at least a week or two. The parents will catch that. But the only cells in the parent that will catch that are the cancer cells because the parents have been vaccinated. Their healthy body is resistant. It's much better if you actually inject the measles into the cancer, but I was trying to do everything under FDA auspices without doing anything that would upset anybody. So I figured that the person, the, the, the parents, had already been exposed to the child's vaccine. How would I know this? Because when I did the antibody teeter on, on the parents, I found that their measles antibodies were, had gone up slightly after the child was vaccinated. And you know this, you know a child who's been vaccinated against measles or mumps can actually infect another child with measles or mumps if their system is down because they're viral factories for that week or two. And whenever, wherever my vaccines are actually registered, I've been able to do this beautifully. I would inject the virus or the extracts of the vaccine part directly into the patient or into the cancer and then use an immune response against it. In UCLA on FDA-approved, in an FDA-approved trial, I, um, backed by the Ethics Committee and everything, fully legally, in America, 20 years ago, we took parents with cancer who were exposed to their child's vaccine just by being around their child, and children who had just been measles, mumps vaccined, and we gave the parents a transfusion from the kid. So now... The parent has the viral proteins being expressed by the cancer, and they have the kid's immune response geared to attack that viral protein. So Paul Tarasaki published this in 1995 or 96. 
It's called Lymphocyte Transfusion Therapy by Paul Terasaki. He published seven patients. We actually did a lot more than seven patients, but these were the seven that, the handful that I'd specifically selected or that I'd at least had knowledge of. And every one of seven, seven out of seven, went into remission just from a transfusion from the children. So what you would do is you would wait until children are vaccinated against measles or mumps. You'd store their blood in a bank. And then when somebody comes with cancer, you'd inject them with measles or mumps. And it doesn't matter what cancer this is. It doesn't matter. And then you would give them the blood transfusion from the child. But 20 years ago, Paul Terasaki published that the blood transfusion from a child to its parent would put the parent's cancer in remission for at least a few weeks or months. Now, what he did then was I said to him, you have to maintain the immune response. You have to give three to six transfusions. He didn't. He only did one. And he only did one so he could document the parents then slip back and die. Because this is what scientists do. Um, Survival isn't the end point. Death is the end point. So he wanted to show in numbers how long the effect lasted for. And When the children came in begging to give another transfusion to the parents and crying, he laughed at them and said no. He'd already proven what needed to be proven. He actually needed the parents to die for his paper more than he needed them to live. It's disturbing. It's disgusting. It's inhumane. It shows the lack of a soul. And this is how the fight between me and UCLA started. Um... So Paul is begging me for the code to my extracts so he could publish something else. I said, treat the parents. No, I have nothing further to prove. And that's how the fight started. Mm -hmm. Um, But be it as it may, and it's a particularly painful year in my life, um, how can you look at a child and say that? Especially when you know that what you did last time saved their parent. How can you say no? And I've had people say, well, you know, it wasn't in the budget. Paul, before he died, donated $80 million to UCLA. He had money. Mm. UCLA doesn't have money for a cancer cure? And what the hell, what the hell do we donate to them for? UCLA is the American government. They're a direct branch of. There was no money for a cure. But remember what I said to you. There can be good people. There can be bad people. Unfortunately, the bad people are louder Unfortunately, they get into positions of power. But it's only because the good people put them there and then do nothing about it. So a few weeks ago when I said 20 years ago this therapy was published, a cure for cancer was published by UCLA. Why isn't it being done today? I wanted UCLA to look at their own data and bring it, put it in the hands of every hospital, every doctor, every patient. A blood transfusion. My God, a blood transfusion. How easy, how easy is that? You just choose blood that will attack the cancer once it's been tagged. And for all of what Paul knew, Paul Terasaki, and for all that the average person knows, they know that cancer is an immune deficiency. That's what the explanation is. We get cancer because our immune system is weak. Now, we tend to think we get cancer because the immune system is weak, because the cancer takes advantage of that. And what I'm saying to you, no. The cancer is trying to help 
that weakened immune response with something else that's saving your life. And when you go to war with what's keeping you alive, you die. So when you go and attack cancer with chemo and radiation and you don't know that it's serving a useful function and you don't take care of the cause. Now, in 6% of the cases, radiation may kill the infection or chemo may kill the infection and they're the people that you cure. But if you don't get rid of the cause, the cancer will always come back because your body is programmed to keep bringing it back. But simply put, it's an immune weakness. So why don't we just strengthen the immune system? Why don't we give an immune transplant, a lymphocyte transfusion from children to adults? That simple. And the only publication in 20 years has been that this puts cancer into remission. So, like I said to you, there's bad people are louder. So I said that. I said that. I came out and I said that a few weeks ago. It's been done legally on U.S. soil under FDA approval 20 years ago. It worked 100%. Why isn't it available today? What do I get back? He's a quack. Mm-hmm. Uh, no scientific data ever published by him. I said it was published by UCLA. Not by me. So don't go looking for publications by me. I said they stole it from me. That was the whole reason for the fight, which I won, by the way, at least temporarily. The jury gave me a unanimous $10 million judgment. Bill Clinton changed my judges and one of her first cases she overturns a unanimous jury decision something that never happens in california a judge cannot go against her own ruling she had ruled in favor and then she ruled against what she ruled in favor of the jury being able to decide a monetary amount and then she ruled against her own ruling to overturn a unanimous jury decision. Why don't people look at that? When the hell has that ever happened in California? So, you know, okay, the OJ case was tragic and horrible. There's no words for it. But these were two people. Two people. How many people have died because nobody championed my case? Nobody gave a flying. How many people with cancer have died? That was actually one of my questions for you. But you see, it's much easier to attack me. It's much easier to say I'm a quack. I'm not published. And I'm saying, you know what? I don't care if you believe UCLA and Cedar stole my work. I don't care because they published it. The only reason it isn't out there is because right now we have a population controlled by media. And all the media cares about is destroying the outside guy. This is, <laughs> this is like um, racism against the Sam. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm in a minority of one yeah. who knows what actually happened. And so it's Sam, easy. Sam's lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the only thing. They attack me because they can't attack the science. They attack me because they can't attack UCLA. The trouble is people listen. And again, just for a summary, this work was published, proven, under FDA auspices 20 years ago. Seven people were cured, at least temporarily. They were put into remission. Paul Terasaki himself ended the paper by saying, this technique will work against many cancers and has almost no side effects. Mm -hmm. So really, the millions of you who have died over the past 20 years couldn't have used a non-toxic therapy when chemo was failing. And again, 
read one thing that's in my favor or read one thing that UCLA or Cedars... UCLA and Cedars immediately came out and said, oh, um, uh, the judge overturned the jury decision. Yeah, okay, look at that. When the hell has that ever happened? Yeah, why? You know, why? Did Judge Ito overturn the jury decision against OJ? No. Was that as important as a cure for cancer? You know, and yet it never happened. How the hell does this happen? And it is racism. It is totally racism. And it's nice that Americans are proud of who they are. And I love America. It's my favorite country. It isn't the only country. There are doctors who exist in Australia. Dr. Drew came out and attacked me and said, I'm not licensed. I'm not licensed. Because I'm not licensed with an American degree, um, I'm, not, I'm nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, instantly dismissing all the other doctors in the world mm-hmm. as being nobody who matters. Oz did the same thing. Well, hey, you know, I have more registrations, more publications than the two put together. Actually, forget the publications because uh, Oz has his own magazine. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I could do that. Um, but So let's, for our audience members who don't know about, you know, we're, not, we're now talking about Oz and we're going into the avenue of what, what happened to your life, what happened to your life since this all went down. You know, so um, tell us about about that. Well, I never thought that the hardest part of finding a cure for cancer and AIDS would be to get it out to the people. I thought it would catch like fire. And when I treated some high-profile celebrities who did really well, Cedars and UCLA came begging me, begging me to work with them. And I have the letters to prove it. Um, uh, Shlomo Melmed, who was the head of the major research institute at Cedars-Sinai, um, they were actually competing with other hospitals for me. And he came up and he said, look, um, this is an exciting new world of therapeutic opportunity. He said, you know, we're impressed by his dedicated success in clinical cases. Why would he say clinical cases and success? Because he knew of the people I treated and cured. You know, UCLA and Sears don't pick somebody off the street and say, hey, want to work with us? Mm-hmm. They don't. And for me, it was almost like the hand of God reaching out and pulling me out of Australia. I ran. I didn't just go. I ran. I wanted so badly to have my work out there. And they promised me it would go through. They would fast track it to the FDA. They said it to me. You think you can do it? You know, we can do it in a week, two weeks. Fast track, we have the attorneys, we have the people, we show this works, and we will cure the world. And that's what they promised. Um, they did all the testing, and again, people, don't attack me. These are publications by Cedars and UCLA. They tested it. They found it effective. They found it profound. Eric Dar described the viral inhibition as profound against both strains of HIV tested. Now, you know, a measles vaccine won't work against the mumps. And a flu vaccine from one year won't work against the flu from another year. And an AIDS vaccine, even today, against one strain of AIDS, isn't going to work against another strain of AIDS. But 20 years ago, they had one that worked against both strains. 20 years ago. They said it was profound. They weren't even able to explain how it was so effective. And yet here it was. So what do they do? They work with USC, with Angeline Duvas, They provide her with my material. Angeline Duvas publishes 
about one of my greatest discoveries with AIDS, which is that CAEV, measles, mumps, feline panleukopenia virus, um, many, many viruses interfere with HIV. In other words, any of those vaccines or any of those viruses can be used to prevent AIDS. So and you can administer a pan, like a panleukopenia vaccine to, for a feline into a human for HIV? Absolutely. In fact, one of the most effective vaccines, which I cannot claim to have discovered for cancer, but I did find works against AIDS, is Newcastle's virus. Newcastle's virus is a form of um, uh, virus that affects chickens. And the Newcastle disease is like the chicken flu. It's closer to measles, actually. Um, but the Newcastle vaccine was found to be effective against cancer decades ago. And it is a very strong inhibitor, and it does fight against HIV. But one of the best ones I found was CAEV. And I found that, again, by looking, not by science, by looking. Um, when CAEV... Uh, when I discovered that as an anti-HIV vaccine, it had followed a few years of another observation. Um, when AIDS first came out, and maybe not a few years, it was soon after this observation, there was one lady in Africa who was bragging that she was one of the best hookers in Africa, never caught AIDS, and she was safe. So all the dudes were heading over there, and there was such a fear of AIDS at the time. Mm. I flew to Africa to see what it was about her mm. that made her mm. immune. And, and uh, the first thing I noticed getting off the plane, her hands were twisted up like this. Actually, I noticed that before get going to Africa. I noticed that in a picture of her. She had arthritis. She turned out to have rheumatoid arthritis. So then I run back and I see, okay, whoa, what if rheumatoid arthritis can somehow protect against HIV? What if there are diseases that can protect against HIV? I ended up finding that with all of the frenzy about blood transfusions giving AIDS, there were two populations or three populations that didn't catch it. See, hemophiliacs, of course, you know, they're, they're open to it because they receive transfusions all the time. But there is another population of patients which gets transfusions all the time, and they did not show up as a high-risk factor because they didn't catch AIDS as much as anybody else. Mm. Come on, people. Who was it? Who needs blood transfusions all the time and has a disease that's designed to weaken infections? Okay. Cancer patients. So cancer patients were getting blood transfusions or having surgery and getting blood transfusions after the surgery. We didn't even know what HIV was at the time, but they weren't catching it. But hemophiliacs were. Right. Couldn't find anybody with rheumatoid arthritis who could catch it either. It turns out that certain types of cancer, not all, do protect against AIDS. And it turns out that autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and something called mixed connective tissue disease, um, HIV can survive in the blood of patients with autoimmune disease. So if you walk away from me right now and you know nothing else, you know that... Um, a blood transfusion from somebody with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or mixed connective tissue disease. And there are certain cancers that you can give um, extracts of to inhibit HIV. And these were way more effective than the AZT or the garbage that was out at the time. And 
they were all, when I provided these as vaccines to people, all these sources I used to make vaccines, they all tested to be more than 99% effective against HIV. Every strain of HIV tested at Cedars. So, and they were non-toxic. I mean, water was more toxic in, the, in therapeutic doses. When I was traveling through Mexico, because see, there's still, there's a fear. We don't understand cancer, so I don't really encourage right now injecting cancer into people. Although cancer extracts are actually remarkable. They're remarkable for stem cell value. They're remarkable as immune stimulants. Yes, stimulants. And they're remarkable for regeneration. Some of the best work I did was with extracts in animals that had multiple sclerosis type models or that had had their spinal cord severed. Cancer cell extract would actually grow that. Wow. So here we're talking about this random, awful mutation that has to be killed. And it has so many applications. Amazing. Now, I can't publish, but I do videos, I do lecture, I do write. People read that. So a few years ago, not much of a surprise, they treated somebody with um, strokes by injecting cancer cells into the brain, mm. which then regenerated their brain tissue. Mm. Stem cells, the huge hope for cancer, are grown on cancer oh. cells. They're grown on cancer cells because only cancer cells can give them the right nutrition. Tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, the ones that everybody looks for, natural killer cells, you know those. They don't grow if there's no cancer around. And when you actually grow them in a test tube, you have to feed them cancer cells which provide the proper nutrition, not as food. They're actually like their mama. They, they wrap themselves around the T-cells and they provide them with nutrition and the T-cells grow. And you never see a T-cell attacking a cancer cell in a test tube. Mm. You only see that sometimes in animals or in people because the T-cell is actually attacking the infection inside the cancer. So, so that's... And by the way, why don't the continuous cell lines... Why aren't they representative? I told you it's one in a million. Because most of them don't have the inherent infection. Mm. So there's just a genetic change. Yeah, so you can't... It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You yeah. can't study anything based yeah. on that. Okay, so... I have a quick question. So when, when we're testing, um, you know, vaccines, how we're currently giving them to small children, and we're putting those in cancer cells, like you said... Um, but we're, we wanted, we made a request to go back to the original way of making vaccines. Um, why would we need to do that if the cancer cells can be isolated and utilized in this beneficial way? Because we don't know what part of the cancer. Oh, so they're not isolating it the way that you're talking about. No, 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 we do, they're not. And we're not, to, you know, when somebody's dying of a massive stroke yeah. or they're paralyzed, you can justify using something. Okay. But let me give you an example of what I'm saying. When interferon was first used, it was grown out of cancer cells. And interferon, um, to give it to a person, there was so much panic about injecting a piece of cancer into a person. It had to be radiated and passed through filters and chemo. And they did an amazing elaborate process. Now, of course, it's not um, all grown on cancer. We have bioengineered ways of doing it from bacteria. But the panic was there back then. It's the same as AIDS. Even if you change the virus, you want to use it against leukemia, do we really know what part of it is dangerous and what part of it isn't? Right. And more than anything, when you break it down, 
So you can't, you can't use cancer with impunity. You have to respect it. Mm -hmm. And you have to know what parts are safe and what parts aren't. What parts aren't. Um, and there are alternatives. For example, cancer fluid from a um, chylomicrosocytes. Pseudoscience, all garbage, never been published. Actually, it was published back in the good old days when doctors had secrets. Mm -hmm. So in the original days when doctors published, they wouldn't give it all away. So there was a substance X that they were injecting with amazing results. Mm -hmm. And substance X would take away all the pain and would take away, would reduce or eliminate cancer in many cases. So substance X... Oh, man, this is just kind of sounds really crazy. But I told you before, infections can't exist with other infections. Mm -hmm. Cancers also hate existing with other cancers. Mm -hmm. You never see breast cancer and lung cancer. You can see breast cancer that's gone to the lung, but you will never see breast cancer and lung cancer cohabiting because one cancer tends to be able to destroy another cancer if prepared properly. Mm -hmm. So... The substance X was actually ascites, cancer cell fluid. And ascites can be incredibly beneficial in certain disease conditions, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-cancer, or it could be harmful. Um, but like I said, there are alternatives. Mm -hmm. Best alternative is, how do you catch AIDS? Tell me. I mean, intravenous drug use, through sexual contact... How many times did you have to have sexual contact, risk-wise? Even once, right? Mm, that's what you learn. Even a drop of that sperm inside you, or even a little bit of vaginal fluid, and you're done. You can't even take a drop, says the guy who injected himself with Charlie Sheen's blood. That's you. Yeah, it's me. Um, something more important to talk about. I just told you that cancer and cancer cell extracts yes. can destroy disease. Yeah. I just told you the acidic fluid, the thing that makes cancer patients swell up and look like they're pregnant just before they die, it can actually destroy HIV if it's from the right cancer. Right. So, of course, you can pass it through a filter and use it, but there's always the theoretical risk. And when I found goat's milk to have a virus that can fight HIV and I made vaccines from that, it was based on the observation that in a place where there was no AIDS, there were no... Um, the, uh, people were drinking milk from goats with arthritis. And the arthritis virus, I put two and two together with the prostitute who had arthritis. And I wondered if a virus that causes arthritis in goats may give us the protection without the disease. And so that's how the CAEV came to be. So what I'm saying is... So that's not by drinking the goat's milk, but rather having a vaccine made from the goat's milk. That's what I do. Okay. But people who because drink... Because people are saying... That I'm inj injected Charlie with goat's milk. No, that you're... I'm the goat doctor. The, right. Or that and, you're feeding goat's milk to people to try to cure HIV. Well, not goat's milk. It has to be CAEV infected. It has to be concentrated. It has to be a harmless strain of it. All There's very a, important details. A lot of science <laughs> that has to go into this. Or you could just move into Mexico or other places that have CAEV and drink the milk for a few months or years until you're protected. All I was saying was... Because I did that, everybody's attacking the goat virus. He's the goat doctor. He injected our Charlie, our Charlie, with, <laughs> with, with goat milk. And he cured himself. Oh, no, I love this one. I read it the other day in, in uh, I don't remember. And if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
I injected myself with his blood and I cured myself with goat's milk. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Um, my vaccines are way more complicated. Yeah. It's, it's one aspect. One aspect is CAEV. But there are alternatives.